From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. It has been high drama in the U.S. House of Representatives, beginning with an 11th hour vote late last month that kept the government from shutting down. Then the ouster of Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. The first time in U.S. history a Speaker of the House has been removed. The House was plunged into chaos. Without a leader, congressional business ground to a halt. Then, overshadowing it all, Hamas's brutal attack on close U.S. ally Israel, which quickly escalated into war. It has added urgency to a challenging week. Joining us with her perspective on the recent events on Capitol Hill and in Israel and Gaza, plus issues she's working on for Oregon, 6th District Congresswoman Andrea Salinas is here joining us from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Straight Talk. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Laurel. I'm so pleased to be here. Well, we should say uh, right off the top, Congresswoman, for our viewers, we're taping this episode on Friday morning and the situations with the House Speaker vote and in Israel are fluid, so things could change before the show airs. But before we get to those issues, Congresswoman, you made a big announcement this morning. The Department of Energy selected the Pacific Northwest Regional Hydrogen Hub, or PNWH2 hub, as it's known, as one of several to be built across the U.S. What does this mean for the region and Oregon in particular? Well, I am really excited, and this is exciting news. This was a competitive nationwide process, and it's really um, will be a boon for the region. The hubs will actually accelerate the transition to clean energy and create an estimated about 10,000 jobs in our region, which includes about 8,000 good-paying construction jobs. So this is not only a boon to for jobs, but also for the climate. Um, you know, with the bipartisan infrastructure law, we are so grateful to the Secretary, um, Secretary Granholm and the Biden administration for seeing Oregon and the Pacific Northwest region as a place where um, hydropower can be the future of clean energy. This was a highly competitive process. What set the Pacific Northwest region, do you think, apart from the rest of the country? What was your initial reaction when you found out we were selected? I was, I should say, I was excited, but I wasn't surprised. I think all the work that we have been doing um, as Oregonians and Washingtonians, I know, you know, the Pacific Northwest really has been working on moving to clean energy, whether it's, you know, our renewable portfolio standard, our um, clean fuel standard. We have been moving in that direction for a while. And I think this just fits in with the work that we have been doing. And so we should, I think we should be a region for additional investment on top of this. Hydrogen has been called the Swiss army knife of clean energy for its versatility. What role will it play in the clean energy transition and reducing carbon emissions? Well, as I understand it, this hub, I think, um, pulls out, I think it's a million carbon tons um, annually from from our um, our atmosphere. So this will be a huge boon for for our, you know, for climate. I noticed Portland General Electric is one of the organizations mentioned as part of the hub. What's next? That's a great question. I think there are several um, different applications out there. And as the in, so this was under the bipartisan, bipartisan infrastructure law. We also have the Inflation Reduction Act, which also includes billions of dollars of investment, which I know the Pacific Northwest is looking towards um, seeking um, some funding and investment through that as well. So. I think we will start to see additional projects roll out and hopefully awarded here in our region. 
Well, it's very exciting for the region. Let's talk now about what's got a lot of people's attention, what is happening in Israel and Gaza, where Hamas launched an unprecedented surprise attack on Israel last weekend. Thousands of people have been killed or injured, including at least 27 Americans killed. Hamas is holding hostages, and the president has said Americans are among them. Every day we're hearing about new atrocities the terrorists have committed. What are your thoughts, Congresswoman, about what's happening in the Middle East and the U.S. position? Well, first and foremost, I stand with Israel, and I'm just horrified by the utter devastation and loss of human life that we're seeing right now. And I condemn Hamas's unprovoked attacks on the innocent people of Israel. You know, I was just um, there visiting in early August um, as someone who needs to learn more about our relationship with Israel and the region. And we actually went to the kibbutz that was attacked so horrifically. And so it feels um, feels very close to what, you know, things that I've witnessed, people I met, people I got to know, um, the little kids we got to see in the kibbutz and their toys and and the, the horrors that I know this gentle, kind community felt um, feels feels terrible right now. Well, members of the community, along with Oregon elected leaders, gathered in solidarity this week at Congregation Neva Shalom. You joined via live stream. How would you describe the feelings and position of the Oregon delegation? I feel as though we are united behind the people of Israel, and we are we stand at the ready to make sure that we help Israel to defend itself. You know, Republicans and Democrats are united on this issue, not just in Oregon, I think um, in our Congress at large. You know, we have a resolution that um, that our, our ranking member and the chair of the um, Foreign Affairs Committee have put together, and I hope we can find a bipartisan path forward to, to make sure we, we can help Israel. There are also warnings from the United Nations about a possible humanitarian crisis looming in Gaza, where water and electricity supplies have been cut off. The status of aid is unclear. What are your concerns about the Palestinian civilians in Gaza as Israel has launched its counterattack? That is a concern. And I think we have to make sure that we recognize that Hamas is a terrorist organization and they must be condemned and rooted out. But we also need to make sure that the Palestinians get the help and relief that they need. I would love to see a United Nations mission um, helping right now to make sure that they can flee the Gaza Strip. I don't know if that you know will happen, but um, we do. I think people need to understand that this is a multifaceted, complex issue and it is not just black and white. And the situation in the Middle East has added urgency to a vote for a new House speaker, in part because the House can't pass any emergency military aid for Israel without a speaker. How would you describe what's going on right now in Congress and in the House? Well, first, I think uh, you showed a clip that really emphasized the gravity of this moment. And, you know, this has never before happened in U.S. history. It is unprecedented. So I did not take this vote lightly by any means. Um, unfortunately, our former speaker consistently demonstrated that he was unable to lead. And so um, I think we need to make sure that whatever speaker is put before us does have the um, the support of the entire Republican caucus, but also the support of the Democratic caucus. We are united. We are united. We would, in a heartbeat, if we had enough votes, um, we know who we would vote for. We would, you know, vote for Speaker Jeffries. 
But we need a speaker who will lead with honesty and integrity and actually work across the aisle because bipartisanship isn't just important, it's absolutely critical at this time in our nation's history. And it's what Oregonians sent me to Congress to do. Well, we heard uh, late Thursday night, Representative Scalise removed his name. Now it's Representative Jordan, and I think he also has a, a challenger now, Representative from uh, Scott from Georgia. How long do you think this is going to take? I wish I was a fly on the wall inside the Republican conference right now. I don't really know. Their conference is divided and it's not united and it doesn't seem to want to work with Democrats right now. I keep hoping that we might see a fig leaf where we could you know, build some kind of coalition. I work with um, members of the Republican conference all the time. They're in control or they were in control um, of the House. And so I have no idea how long this could take. We've heard, you know, we've heard a couple of days, we've heard a couple of weeks. Um, but in the meantime, I don't care how long it takes. I'm going to keep working on the issues that matter to, to my district and to Oregonians, like lowering costs for middle class families, tackling the fentanyl crisis, improving public safety, working on mental health. Well, Bloomberg's reporting with McCarthy's ouster and, and how long this is taking. A government shutdown now looks more likely in November because you only passed a continuing resolution. That's 35 days away about. How concerned are you about that, about another government shutdown? I am concerned about another government shutdown. I think we all are. And, you know, there were some things that we did not accomplish in that first continuing resolution. Um, and I was proud, actually, of what Democrats were able to do. We were able to come to the table, get a deal with um, Speaker McCarthy. And I think that's actually why he was called to be ousted. But, you know, since that time, Republican chaos and political theater has been running amok. But that last bill, it wasn't perfect. It lacked funding for Ukraine, funding for student borrowers, something I specifically called on leadership to include. So there are a lot of things. But now, as you mentioned, we are facing, you know, this this crisis in Israel, we are facing, you know, Ukraine. And so there are lots of things on the table. I'm hoping at the very least, we will be able to come together in a bipartisan way and make sure that we can um, continue, do a, another continuing resolution, even if we can't um, do something that longer term. Let's talk about some of those issues that you're working on for Oregon. October is World Mental Health Month. So let's talk about some of that legislation for Oregon when it comes to mental health. You're a member of the Bipartisan Mental Health Caucus. Recently, you gave a floor speech on mental health and said you were dedicating your Mondays to focus on mental health. Let's listen. 731,000 adults in Oregon have a mental health condition. 731,000. Our friends, neighbors, colleagues, family members are struggling, and we in Congress have an obligation to find solutions to their struggles. That's why I'm dedicating my Monday to mental health. For too long, we've allowed stigma to shame people into silence, and that silence has cost lives. And you've introduced the Helping Out Patients for Emotional and a Mental Wellbeing Act, or HOPE, addressing the mental health crisis and the high cost of care. Tell us more about your focus on mental health and what your legislation would do to help. Thank you for asking. So the Hope and Mental Wellbeing Act is a bill, it's pretty simple. It would grant three free annual mental health care visits to anyone who is insured by either Medicare or Medicaid. I heard along the campaign trail a lot from seniors, um, older Americans, and those um, who are on you know, the Oregon Health Plan or other 
other kinds of um, insurance that they really can't access care because of the cost. And so this would essentially allow somebody's foot in the door. I recognize that three visits probably isn't enough if you have a serious um, mental health challenge. And I also know that there is no one size fits all approach to solve our mental health crisis. So this is just one piece of it. But those three visits can really, I think, start to peel back the onion, let somebody in the door to start seeking care. And it will really show, um, take people out of crisis and start to understand what it is that they need, especially starting with our seniors and low income individuals. Um, but I recognize that this is not, this is just the start of one of the things that I, I have that, you know, a long list of different populations. I know our Latino population is, is another group that really has a hard time and they struggle. My district is 20% Latino and they often face disproportionate barriers, um, culturally and linguistically responsive care that sometimes is not available. And so this will also be a priority. And you co-founded the Bipartisan Rural Health Caucus. The U.S. Census Bureau says 20% of Americans live in rural communities. And COVID you know, really shined a light on the obstacles people living in rural areas face when it comes to health care. What are some of the challenges you've heard about and witnessed for Oregonians in rural communities? Well, um, again, I, you know, I've been visiting a lot of our, our health care clinics and our hospitals throughout the district. And right now, three out of four counties in my district are experiencing a mental health provider shortage. And it's it's even worse in, you know, in the smaller rural towns. And the truth is we need to do more to address the provider shortage across the board. And whether it's mental health or physical health, and this has continues to be a big focus of mine, which is why I helped to found the Bipartisan Rural Health Caucus. Um, I'm excited for this. It's bipartisan. It's a forum to discuss these issues and really find a bipartisan path forward on, on things that I know Oregonians aren't the only ones struggling with. It's across the nation right now. And during the pandemic, telehealth helped folks get health care. But then you have to have good Internet service to to get the telehealth. So that's that's a concern, too, especially in rural areas. Oregon did get some federal funding to address the lack of broadband. Do you see that improving? I certainly hope so. I mean, I got us a, a specific. Um, well, so far, it's been uh, if we get the bill passed, if we get the, the continuing resolution, the full funding of the government passed. Um, CD6 should see some some federal funding for rural broadband specifically. And we know we're having issues in the Sherwood, Nur um, Newburgh area. And so I am certainly hoping that this will improve and that we will be able to roll this out and we should be able to see some improvement. And you mentioned fentanyl earlier, like much of the country, Oregon's also facing a fentanyl crisis. What would you like to see Congress do to address the fentanyl crisis? There are things that we could be doing. You know, I've been meeting with law enforcement and our, our cities and localities on this issue. And there are things, again, that we can be doing, but we have to fund the federal government. So we absolutely need a speaker. In fact, I, I wrote a letter to Speaker McCarthy urging him to make sure we, we got it, not just a continuing resolution, that we, but that we fund our, our federal budget adequately so that we can make sure that we are paying and providing the investments that we need for both um, the narcotics units that work up and down I-5, as well as the ones that work with our local jurisdictions. So like Marion County Sheriff's Office, Salem Police Department, 
things of that nature to crack down on the fentanyl crisis. It, this also is a multifaceted approach to making sure that fentanyl stays out of our communities and that the response to our communities is adequate as, as well. But we need that funding. And this summer, we marked the one-year anniversary of the Chips and Science Act becoming law. I know you were at an event that marked that. It's meant to boost the domestic semiconductor industry, so important to Oregon's economy. What can you tell us about how Oregon is positioned to benefit from the Chips and Science Act? Well, this, this is one that's very exciting to me. Um, you know, I serve on the Science, Space, and Technology Committee. And thanks in large part to this landmark legislation, we... The United States is moving steadily into the future, and we should see billions of dollars nationwide in the Chips and Science Act. We, as people know, we are a semiconductor manufacturing industry in Oregon, and we not only manufacture um, chips, but we also manufacture a lot of the parts. And so the supply chain products that support the chips manufacturing, and that's a lot of what we do in the 6th Congressional District. So, you know, I specifically asked um, Secretary Granholm when she was in front of our committee about this, and they are going to be standing up. So like the, the hydrogen hubs, um, they're going to be standing up some tech hubs around chips and science manufacturing. And I'm, I've been pushing for Oregon to make sure that we are one of those, those hubs and that we see that investment because we are ripe for it. And again, we're poised for it because of all the work and all the manufacturing that we do now. Well, Congresswoman, it's time for us to take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with 6th District Congresswoman Andrea Salinas from Washington, D.C. We'll talk about family farms in Oregon and also get her reflections on her first term in office. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter, and we're talking with Oregon's 6th District Congresswoman, Andrea Salinas, speaking to us from Washington, D.C. Thank you once again for being here. Oh, it's lovely to be here. We are taping this again on Friday morning, but yesterday, Thursday, was National Farmers Day. So let's talk a little bit about farming, because family farms are really the backbone of the farming industry in Oregon, but you've pointed out they're often left out of the farm bill process. How so? Well, specifically, there is about, so we have this bill, it's called the Farm Bill, and it covers billions of dollars of investment for farms across the nation. But about 8% of farms, and we're talking mostly the agribusiness farms, receive about 91% of all of this funding. So the other, you know, the other, I don't know, it's something like, 150,000 farms or so, or two million, about 2 million farms are the ones that are left behind. And those are largely the small family farms that are in my district. So I have been talking to growers throughout the, the six CD and, um, and in other places as well. We've held some listening sessions. Um, Congresswoman Chavez Dreamer and I had our chair, GT Thompson, out to Oregon. It was great to have an actual ag committee hearing. And the things that we've heard are, you know, some of the stressors like extreme weather events, um, food insecurity, worker shortages. A lot of that is a result of historic underinvestment in Oregon and specifically in some of our smaller communities. So one thing that I have found from from talking to growers is that when a catastrophic weather event happens, like, you know, like 
fires or um, heat domes or the, you know, the ice storms that we've seen over the last few years, they have a hard time because they are, they either can't access crop insurance or they don't have access to disaster assistance. And so I have come up with a bill that would kind of change the paradigm on how those who come up with the policies around crop insurance actually are incentivized. So rather being incentivized on the size of it, which these larger agribusinesses obviously have larger premiums, they would be incentivized on the complexity. And some of these smaller farms actually and growers have more complex policies. And so, so the the policy um, writers then would have incentive to actually write these policies and hopefully provide some access to our smaller growers. And you're also focused on legislation to encourage healthy soils and address climate change. How are soils and the climate related and what would your legislation do? Yeah, so in actually in, Ash, in honor of uh, National Farmers Day, I just introduced the Soil Care Act. And that would ensure that the U.S. Department of Agriculture personnel and qualified third-party service providers are properly equipped to train farmers and producers on how to rebuild degraded lands and increase profitability and resilience. And this is something, this is another issue that we've been hearing about given climate change and some of our droughts and, um, you know, our our soils and our lands are not as resilient as they used to be. And But there are ways that you can, and so whether it's through OSU extension or USDA on the ground third party um, technicians to help farmers and growers to improve the quality of their soil so they can continue to stay in production. You were elected in 2022 in Oregon's brand new sixth district that was created after the 2020 census. How would you describe your term so far? You know, I don't, I like to give a balanced look at what my term has been. It is, I've obviously, I've had some highs. There have been some lows. I will say, you know, um, seeing a speaker removed for the first time in history was definitely a low for me. But I will also say that I have met some wonderful people on both sides of the aisle who are genuine and sincere about moving this country forward. We need to put them in leadership positions and find that bipartisan path forward to move the country forward. And before you were elected to Congress, you were an Oregon state legislator in Salem. How would you describe the difference working in Salem versus D.C.? Oh my goodness. You know, Laurel, I used to, I was a staffer many years ago, like 25, 30 years ago on Capitol Hill. It has changed so much. I will say we don't have as much time in Washington, D.C. to just become friendly with our, our colleagues across the aisle in the, even in the way we, we were able to even a little bit in Salem. And I don't think we got to do it enough in Salem, but I will say that is probably the biggest barrier to actually being able to, to work together. We don't have a lot of time. We were pulled in so many different directions and having to fly five hours, 10 hours round trip um, takes a big chunk out of, out of the, out of the day. So that's a, that's a hard commute too. Probably only Hawaii must must be harder. What what's been the biggest surprise for you? I will say the biggest surprise for me has been how helpful my chairman have been in, in on my two committees. Um, you know, I've already gotten a few of my amendments 
through the SIP, uh, Chips and Science Act, my chairman in my um, House Agriculture Committee, G.T. Thompson, who came out and had a hearing with us, he has also been, I think, really responsive and wants to figure out ways to work with me. So that has felt amazing to me and and very respectful and, and helpful. Well, just 30 seconds left for a final thought for our viewers tonight. I would just say I don't want people to despair. We are in really tough times, but we do have good people ready to step up. We just have to nominate and get a speaker across the finish line, and we have to make sure that we work in a bipartisan way to move our country forward. I'm ready to do that, and I hope people, at your viewers at home, know that, that that's what I was sent here to do, and that's what I will continue to do. Thank you, Representative Andrea Salinas, for joining us from Washington, D.C. And thank you for watching and listening to our podcast. You can find our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Search for KGW Straight Talk. Join us next week when we get a status report on the project to replace the I-5 bridge with a special focus on how the project is addressing equity. We'll see you next week for Straight Talk.